You know that feeling that you that you get when when you've done something wrong? You know, that guilt, that shame, and, and nobody knows about it? And you're not sure what to do with it? It kind of weighs you down like a hundred pound weight on your back. Your stomach churns, you wonder when is somebody going to find out? Will somebody find out? And you try to push that feeling down because you're almost paralyzed by it. And you try to shove it down. You try to take your mind off of it through diversions, food or TV or sports or work or sleep. And for a while that may work, but then it keeps coming back, those feelings of guilt and shame like a a bad cold. And it pops up once in a while. But over time it becomes a memory and you think you've gotten away with it, but you haven't. Because it begins to change you. It begins to change your heart. It begins to change your relationship with God. It begins to change your relationship with other people. That's what happened to King David. As a young teen, he had killed a giant Goliath. He got Saul's attention, became a general, and defeated tens of thousands of enemies. He married the king's daughter, and then he became king. And God blessed him with power and wealth and many children. And Israel was at the height of her, her powers. But then something happened. That's not quite how it really should be stated. Because when you say something just happened, well, it's, it implies that it was bad luck or just unusual circumstances, unfortunate circumstances. It's true to say that David did something. He was on his roof at night one, and looking out and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. She didn't know anybody could see her, but he did, and he should have looked away, but he didn't. And a fleeting thought turned into into an idea. The idea turned into an obsession. The obsession turned into an action. And he slept with her, and she was pregnant, and he was afraid. And one thing led to another, and he arranged things so that her husband would be at the front of the battle and he would be killed, and that's what happened. And he must have thought that he'd gotten away with it. But he hadn't. See, sin is tempting, it's shiny, it's exciting, and the moment it's all we can think about. But it always, always costs us something in the end, even when we think we've gotten away with it. Broken relationships, perhaps broken health, the respect of others, our own self-respect. A hardened heart, a darkened mind, a cold spirit. And we may not even realize it first, or if we do, we may not care enough to do something about it. But at some point, if it comes to light, you can't avoid it anymore. And you, and you come to the realization that you don't like who you've become and you wonder, how did I end up like this? Is there any hope for me? Am I too far gone? Now, Psalm 51 has long been one of my favorites. It was written by David, of course. And unlike some of the other psalms that he wrote, we know the context. We know exactly what was motivating him to write this psalm. Some of the psalms have these headings, you know, things like uh, a psalm of Korah, a psalm of Asaph, or a psalm of David. Some say how it's supposed to be used, for the director of music, for a song of ascent. But the heading for Psalm 51 tells us who it's for, who wrote it, and when. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
it's a powerful psalm of confession. It's a psalm that I've used personally in my life at times when I, when I feel I need to confess a sin and, I've, and I, I want to come clean with God. It's a psalm I've referred people to when they come to me for counseling, when they're carrying around a heavy weight. And when you look at it, like all great apologies, like all great confessions, David doesn't hem, he doesn't haw, he doesn't dance around, he's not subtle. He doesn't say, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that, I, I didn't really mean to, that, that's not really me. I didn't know it would bother you so much. If I've offended you or something, don't you like it when somebody says, if I've offended you or something, I'm sorry. David doesn't qualify or couch his confession. He simply acknowledges his wrongdoing and he asks for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. You know, in the, in the confirmation classes that we have our 7th or 8th graders go through, uh, a definition of a sin that they learn is this. Anything that is contrary to, to God's will in word, deed, or thought. And when you define it that way, it kind of covers all the bases, doesn't it? And it's clear that we all sin at different times in different ways and for different reasons. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of this reality, the fact that we are flawed, imperfect, sinful people, sometimes drawn to temptations that we know we shouldn't be, and yet we do deliberately, as human beings we need God's mercy and we need God's grace desperately. One understanding of mercy is that mercy is not receiving what we deserve. For example, when somebody steals something from their place of work, they deserve to be fired, right? But if the boss says, okay, I'm going to let you keep your job with some provisions or whatever consequences, but you can keep your job. That's mercy. That's not getting something that you deserve. Biblically speaking, when we sin, God as our creator could give us what we deserve for that sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is Mercy. It's not receiving from God what we deserve. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is receiving what we do not deserve. Forgiveness. Life. A second, third, thousandth chance. Mercy. Not receiving what we deserve. Grace. Receiving what we don't. David understands this at some level. He acknowledges his sin and he throws himself on God's mercy. He doesn't diminish his sin. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't try to rationalize it or, or, or to justify it. He takes full responsibility for what he's done. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, now why is it so important for a person to take full responsibility when they've, you know, offended somebody or hurt somebody? Well, because it shows the other person that we understand what we've done, right? I mean, think about the times when somebody has wronged you. How does it feel when it's clear they don't get it, when they don't understand why it's such a a big deal to you? 
when we take responsibility for our actions, it creates the possibility of, of healing and reconciliation in that relationship. After David takes responsibility for his sins here, he asks God to do something for him. He, he wants to feel clean. He wants his conscience cleared. He wants the guilt and the shame lifted from him. He wants to be restored. Cleanse me with hyssop, he writes, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So after committing adultery, after trying to cover it up by arranging to have her husband in a place where he'd be sure to be killed, David feels dirty, guilty, ashamed, unworthy to be in God's presence. And so he does the only thing he knows. He throws himself on God's mercy and he asks him to cleanse me. He comes clean before God because he knows that's the only way that he'll ever feel clean again. Let's take a look at verse 7 again. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. You might think, what, what is hyssop? Well, hyssop, well, before we get to that, remember the Passover way back in Exodus? Uh, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for 500 years and uh, God sends Moses to bring them out of slavery. Moses, Pharaoh is a hard man and will not relent. And so God sends plagues to motivate him to do so. And the last plague, if you remember, was was that the firstborn male in every house would die unless they showed that they trusted in the God of Israel by spreading the blood of a lamb over the doorframe. And they used hyssop, a plant from the Middle East, a plant to, to spread the blood over the doorframe. And if they did, death would pass over and they would be saved. But to this day, the Jewish people celebrate the Passover to remember God's goodness and their deliverance from slavery. And in the New Testament, Jesus is described as our, our Passover lamb, our, our righteousness, our redeemer, our savior, the one who gives his life so that through his blood, covering our sins, we are forgiven and spared death eternal. And so David in this confession in Psalm 51 is hearkening back to the, the blood of the, of the Passover lamb, trusting that no matter how horrible his sins are, that God could and would forgive him. And if David had such confidence... And faith, when faced with his sin, how much more should we who can appeal to the blood of Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb? And so when we've sinned and we feel guilt, we are to come clean with God so that we can be cleansed and made right with him. Next, we see a verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It all begins with a heart, doesn't it? When we sin, it's our heart, our spirit that betrays us. The prophet Jeremiah said this about our hearts. The human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Isn't that true? Sometimes we think, why did I do that? Why am I the way I am? Why can't I change? Why did they do that? The human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. It's because of the heart that we end up doing things we shouldn't do. In David's case, it involves somebody else's life. In ours, it might be misrepresenting ourselves, which is a euphemism for lying, isn't it? To make ourselves look better. In ours, it could be undercutting somebody at work. 
to get ahead, to get the credit, to get the job we want. It could be cheating in a class to get the grade we want. The possibilities are endless because we as human beings can be so creative in trying to figure out ways to arrange things to get things the way we want in life because who can understand the human heart? I'm not ashamed to say that I, that I need God to create in me a clean and pure heart, a faithful and willing spirit to follow Him. I know myself well enough to know that there are times when my motives aren't pure and times when my motives aren't pure and I'm not even aware of it. When my actions aren't good. And I know that I desperately need God to make me clean and to cover me with His grace, to give me mercy. And I know that God and only God can do that for me. Next, David says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. You know, there's a time in college I remember very clearly when I let somebody down who I deeply respected. And I, I remember very clearly the, the feeling in his eyes when he, when he understood what I had done. And there were no excuses. I couldn't say I didn't know better because I did. I couldn't say that I didn't mean to because I did. And all I could do was say, I'm truly, truly sorry. And I will never forget the relief and the peace and the joy that I felt when he forgave me and treated me as if nothing had ever happened. You see, sin robs us of joy. But God's grace and mercy restore it. God doesn't just forgive us and let us be. God forgives us and gives us joy and treats us as if it never happened. And confession restores the joy that sin has robbed. And it removes the barriers between us and God and between us and other people. And helps us to become more the people that we are created to be, that we long to be. Finally, after David is taken from guilt to mercy to grace to joy, he makes a commitment. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saved me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. You know, I've observed something over the years. When a person truly understands the depths of their sin, and they truly understand the mercy God has given them through Christ, they tend to be gracious and loving and forgiving people. They tend to focus on the strengths of people, not on their weaknesses. They are quick to listen. They're slow to anger. But I've also observed that those who don't truly understand God's grace and mercy, even though they've been forgiven, if they don't understand or truly appreciate God's mercy, they can tend to be critical and judgmental. Like in a parable Jesus told in Matthew 18. The parable basically is a man was thrown into debtor's prison because he owes the king more money than he can ever repay. It's, not, it's, it's impossible. And he's thrown into prison and he throws himself on the king's mercy and the king, for some reason, relents and grants him a pardon. And on his way home from the prison... He comes across a man who owes him about a day's wages, really not much. And the man has him thrown into the same prison he just got out of. And after the king finds out, the ungrateful man was thrown back in prison for life. God has forgiven us. And God has shown us mercy. He has not given us what we do deserve for our sins. And he has given us what we don't deserve, grace, forgiveness, love, joy, eternal life. And how we treat others, especially those who wrong us, reveals the degree to which we understand our sin and God's mercy and grace. And David understood 
and he commits himself to telling others about his God and God's mercy and the God who saves. And I would like to think that in the future when somebody came before King David in his court who had done something wrong, that they remembered how God had treated him when he had done wrong. And I'd like to think that David tempered his justice with, with mercy. If you're here this morning and you're carrying around guilt or shame about something you've done, maybe recently, maybe yesterday, maybe this morning, maybe a long time in your past, then this psalm is for you. Sooner or later, it's for all of us, if we're honest. And we can learn and gain hope from it when we feel we're too far gone, done too much, said too much, had the wrong thoughts too much, the wrong pattern too long. Because we can know without a doubt that we serve a God who is gracious and loving and kind and that there is no guilt so deep and no shame so overwhelming that God cannot bring healing. Infidelity, gossip, slander, theft, murder, dishonesty, harsh words, addiction to alcohol or porn or drugs or pride or greed or gluttony. The list goes on. God can and will forgive them all. If we, like David, come to the Lord, acknowledging our sin, asking for mercy and cleansing, trusting completely in Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb, Christ our righteousness. Because the truth of the matter is this, a broken and contrite heart, David wrote, O God, you will not despise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are truly a God of mercy and of grace. We thank you that you have created a way for us where there was no way. That through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, through his righteousness given to us when we put our faith in him, we can be cleansed. We can have a relationship with you. We can have peace and hope. And we we can forgive others as you have forgiven us. So Lord, help us to be quick to confess our sins, to take full responsibility. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge our need for you. And help us, Lord, to show that we understand and appreciate your grace and mercy by how we treat others when they wrong us. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. We come to you in Jesus' name.